it's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Savile Row. The shirt is hand-tailored Indian madras. Also the cravat, hand-woven of Javanese batik. An essential feature of Mr. Bond's wardrobe is the pistol in his right hand. It is a Walter PPK 7.65mm. It takes a Brouch silencer with very little reduction in muzzle velocity. It has a delivery a brick through a plate glass window. His secret agent code number is 007. If you carry a double O number, it means you're licensed to kill, not get killed. Mr. Bond's profession involves deluxe travel, exotic climbs, exclusive clubs. In the course of a working day, and Mr. Bond encounters transportation specialists. Military analysts. Atomic scientists. In the course of a working night, Mr. Bond mingles with golf pros. Now you maybe miss it. You don't miss a thing. Travel guides. Hello? Oh, Mr. Bond. I was thinking, why don't you collect me at my apartment? It's lovely up here in the mountains. Specimens of marine life. James Bond, secret agent number 007. Uh, the double O means he has a license to kill. When he chooses. Where he chooses, whom he chooses. Fleming novels, the favorite of millions from Hong Kong to Hyasport, bursts out of the bestsellers and onto the screen. Now the most extraordinary gentleman spy in all fiction becomes a flesh and blood experience in the kind of breathtaking adventure that only Ian Fleming could create. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this very special episode, I am talking with three authors who all have one thing in common. That is, 
the number 7007 that is and i am talking about james bond i've got three authors we are talking with in alphabetical order mind you aj black the author of the cinematic connery the films of sir sean connery james chapman the author of dr no the first james bond film and steve rubin author of the james bond movie encyclopedia so let's go around and talk with these gentlemen and hear a little bit more about them. So AJ, starting with you, give me a little bit more about you. I'm sure people that have listened to the projection booth are very familiar with you, but in case you haven't, in case you're joining us the first time, AJ, tell me about you and a little bit more about your book and when you first encountered James Bond. Well, good evening, everybody. Somebody had to do it. Might as well be me. Um, yeah, I uh, my book is called The Cinematic Connery, the films of Sir Sean Connery, as you said. And it's from Polaris Publishing. And it's about, it's not a biography, but it is about the life of Connery and the films he made specifically. And it tracks his career through all of those movies. And uh, obviously the Bond movies are a key part of that. They both, I wouldn't say necessarily they bookend his career, but they're key touchstones within it. But uh, in the book tries to cover the span of his work and tries to weave it in and out really of popular culture and history and general societal changes from when he started at the very sort of tail end of that golden age of Hollywood all the way through to, you know, the block, the the beginnings of the blockbuster era era really when he retired and things like that. So yeah, it's quite a span of his work and that's, that's sort of where it goes in terms of my relationship with James Bond. I've loved it since I was a kid. I've loved his movies and not just the Sean Connery ones, but all of them. And, you know, my first my first cinematic bomb was shot at uh, Pierce Brosnan. But I think it was Roger Moore on the TV when I was a kid, <laughs> who I uh, who I absolutely loved. And it was just the escapism for me, you know, that drew me in. And um, I just continue to be a fan. It's one of my uh, one of my biggest fandoms. And I just it's a special moment when a bomb movie comes in each every few years. So, uh, yeah, I'm just I, I can't get enough of it, really. And Professor Chapman, I know that Dr. No is not your first Bond work, but can you tell me a little bit more about how you have interacted with Mr. Bond and your latest work? Well, I'm James Chapman. I'm a cultural historian of British cinema and television. I'm based at the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. And I've been a Bond fan since pretty much all my life, as a, nearly as long as I can remember. I had a kind of, uh, you know, parallel introduction to different Bonds. I remember the early Sean Connery films coming on TV um, in the 70s. I don't have a memory of watching Dr. No, which was first broadcast on TV in the UK in 1975. But I do remember seeing For Much of His Love and Goldfinger. So they were the first Bond movies I'd seen. And then the first movie I ever saw of any kind that I ever saw in the cinema was The Spy Who Loved Me when we were on holiday, in the family holiday in 1977. My dad took me to see it and he sat me down before going out and saying it's not the same James Bond that you've seen on TV and and I was oh I, I was shocked to hear that and I thought oh no I'm not going to like it. it it's not the guy I'm used to well you know five minutes into the spy of me and I was thinking you know who was Sean Connery anyway so Roger Moore was my big screen Bond and he still is in a sense my my Bond it became a, it became an enthusiasm, an interest that uh, when I learned you could make a, a living professionally teaching and researching film history, I, I went back and, and and looked at the Bond films again, and that was the origin of my um, my book uh, License to Thrill. 
um, where I wanted to take a, a critical and historical look at the Bond um, at the Bond movie series. There were a lot of very good, popular works around, including Steve's um, first book on Bond, even before the movie encyclopedia, but Steve's book on uh, James Bond films, Behind the Scenes History, Raymond Benson had published the James Bond bedside companion. But I wanted to look at it from a, from a film historian's point of view and to write not just about the films themselves, but also to position them within the context of particularly British, but to some extent also international film history. And Mr. Rubin, can you tell me a little bit more about your books on Bond and your first experience? I graduated UCLA with a history degree and an interest in writing. I became a staff writer for Cine Fantastique, which was a fine film magazine out of Chicago. I kind of perfected a kind of a forensic look behind the scenes history by interviewing the actual participants. And in the mid-70s when I was doing that, it was still a good time to get a lot of the people who were involved in films going back to the 50s. But my involvement with Bond goes back to middle school. My father would go on business trips and he would he was a voracious reader, read a lot of paperback westerns, which I had no interest in reading because westerns were all over American television in those days. There were westerns on every night. I just didn't have nothing with westerns. But one day he came home in the spring of, seven, of 1964 and dropped a paperback book on my desk with a picture of a naked woman all dressed in gold paint. And I said, what is that? And that, of course, was Goldfinger. And I cracked it open and started reading, and it was very unusual. I was a very sheltered only child, so the idea of sex and women was just about as foreign away at that time as Mars. And then I noticed most of the kids in my middle school were reading the paperbacks. They had become very popular in the States. Now, this is spring 64. That Christmas, we have Goldfinger opening. So I went to see a movie I'd read a book about, which I'd pretty much never done before. And interestingly, in the States, Dr. No and From Russia With Love had been released, but I hadn't heard about them because I don't think we really heard much about Bond yet. It was pre-John F. Kennedy, you know, revealed that on his reading list he had From Russia With Love. So it was an extraordinary time. I saw the original Goldfinger on the big screen at the Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood which was something we rarely did. We didn't live in Hollywood. We lived about 10 miles west. So it was a big deal. And I got into the bond like everybody else. And then later on, having done the forensic research at Cine Fantastique, I decided to apply the same techniques to do bond. And I went to visit Cubby Broccoli in the spring of 1977, shortly before James went off to see Spy Who Loved Me. I was invited. I got a great interview with Cubby. He seemed to like the fact I had written about films from an historian's point of view. And then when I went over to London that summer, I was given carte blanche with Michael Wilson opening all the filing cabinets for me. So my first book, the James Bond films, a behind the scenes history, benefited from getting access to the call sheets. So if I wanted to say Goldfinger was shooting on Saturday, November 1st, and this is what they were shooting, I had the actual details, which was wonderful. That was the beginning of Bond for me. Now, Dr. No, if memory serves, this was the, what was it, fifth, sixth book that Fleming had done with the James Bond character. Why Dr. No as the first entry in the James Bond series? It had not been planned to be the first Bond movie. From what I gathered from the research, Thunderball was going to be the first Bond movie. 
but there were a couple of problems with Thunderball, mainly the fact that it was under a lawsuit, a major lawsuit in the High Court of London, plus the fact it was much too expensive to do on the little budget they had planned for it. Now, this is 1962. I think the budget for Dr. No, at least according to Ken Adam, I think was a little above $1 million, which I think was the coffee budget on No Time to Die. You know, Dr. No was much more in line with what they wanted to do to bring the series out. In retrospect, it was the right bond for the right time. AJ, where was Connery at in his career at this time? He was pre-mega fame, really. You know, he'd done various movies over the years and TV projects and theater, to be fair. But it was before he'd really hit the big time, uh, Dr. No. I think he could have gone down the road of being a, if not a, a lead, but a relatively bit part actor. You know, he was, he was quite often, he was important to play in either the, the fairly bland romantic love interest in stuff like um, Lewis Allen's Another Time, Another Place in the late 50s, or the comedy sidekick in a film called On the Fiddle, which came out just before Dot to Know. And he was doing things like The Longest Day, had a, a cameo in The Longest Day, with, along with everyone else, I think, in Hollywood at the time. But he, he wasn't a huge name at this point. Doctor No is obviously the the film that switched it all on for him, and it was it was all, it was that immediate megastar success that was the case for even though he maybe had a bit more of a character actor career beforehand, sort of hit Daniel Craig, I think, between the eyes in two thousand and five, two thousand and six. That instant mega fame, I think, when these films really start to take off. So he was he was in a really interesting point. I think I think it's a real crossroads point for him, to be honest. But there there is a film I think in. 1961 uh, called The Frightened City, where I think you really see the possibility of Connery as Bond. It's a, a British gangster film, and it's not particularly great as a piece of cinema, but he's really magnetic in it, and he's really dangerous, and he plays a very charming, powerful character. And uh, I think that was the point that it wasn't what got him the job, as far as I know, but I think that was the point where you would be able to see that transition into, into Dr. No and, and Bond. James, what were kind of the steps that it took to get James Bond to come to the big screen? I mean, Fleming had been trying for some years to um, get Bond off the ground for television initially. There was a a live CBS studio drama, Casino Royale, as early as October of 1954. And Fleming was in negotiation with some of the networks in the late 50s. In fact, Dr. No, or what becomes Dr. No, started off as a treatment for an American TV series. It was going to be called, variously, it could have been called Commander Jamaica, James Gunn's Secret Agent. It was going to be one of those kind of half-hour episodic series. Now, that never went anywhere. But Fleming, who was never one to waste an idea or treatment, Took the, the the villain he was going to use in the as a recurring villain, Doctor No, and um, and wrote it into the um, into, into the novel. Fleming had also, of course, been involved with the producer Kevin McClory around about 1959, and it was McClory who suggested not adapting one of Fleming's books, which are difficult to adapt in 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 certain ways, although. You know, Doctor Who ends up being very successful. But McCloy suggested doing an original Bond screen story, and that was uh, going to be known as James Bond of the Secret Service, Longitude 78, and so on. Now, McCloy couldn't get the budget together, and the film sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of you know, died a, died a slow death. And Fleming once again used the uh, the story, and yeah, that became the 
basis of the novel Thunderball. McClory took exception to that, and along with the screenwriter uh, who'd worked on the project, Jack Whittingham, they took throwing to court in um, in London, and, and that case dragged on for some years until it was uh, finally settled um, out of court. So, so there were there were those kind of issues going on in the in in the in the background. There was also the sense that there were two producers who were interested in Bond as a property. One of them was Cubby Broccoli, who was based in Britain. Um, he'd worked with Irving Allen with a company called Warwick Film Productions, which made a lot of what were known as runaways. These were American finance, but British-based films, uh, films such as The Red Beret, a Safari, Zarak, the Cockle Shell Heroes, that was shot in the in the 1950s, and these are largely action adventure type uh, type subjects. And Broccoli had been interested in the um, in the Bond books round about 1957, 58. He'd even tried to arrange a meeting with Fleming, but for personal reasons couldn't couldn't, couldn't make it. And his partner Irving Allen was not interested in in the Bond film, so uh, Warwick sort of sort of lost the opportunity. Then Harry Saltzman, who was a Canadian producer, again based in Britain, also got interested in them around about about 1960. Saltzman was best known at the time. He he was a producer of some of the early British New Wave films, Look Back in Anger, The Entertainer, and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. Uh, But the problem is he had money. Harry was pretty strapped for cash around about 1960, and he had to cobble together what he had to get an option on the books. And it was when his, his option was about to about to expire that he was introduced to 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 Cubby uh, via Wolf Mankovitz, who was who was a mutual friend, and they came together and decided to go into a into a partnership, forming Eon Productions and, and Dan Jack, which is is is, is the, the the rights holding the rights holding company. Yeah, Harry, Harry had the option on the books and didn't want to let it go. Cubby was the one who had the contacts with uh, United Artists and so on, which came on board as the uh, as the uh, studio, as the financer and distributor. So it was it was a kind of forced marriage between the two producers, in a sense. And initially, they you know seemed to have got on very well in the sixties. Later on, we know they had their quite significant differences. But in, I think in sixty one, sixty two, it was a, it was a different case. Two of you have mentioned this court case around Thunderball, and I'm curious, is that what then eventually leads to Never Say Never Again? Because doesn't have that have something to do with the Thunderball case? Yeah, yes, it does. I mean, very briefly, the, the out-of-court settlement over Thunderball is that Kevin McClory picks up the screen rights to, to that one uh, property, and he is technically the producer of the 1965 movie. It's still very much part of the Eon series, and uh, I, I, I think Eon stamp is, is very much on that film. McClory was, was, was brought on board, and there was a, a special deal that was um, that was done. Part of that deal was that McClory agreed not to exercise his, um, his rights in the property for another 10 years. I mean, how naive that seems today, the idea that Bond would be all finished in, in another 10 years or so. But once that period has expired, McClory sought to get another version of the uh, of the script off the ground in, uh, in in from the mid seventies onwards, and that eventually matured as Never Say Again in nineteen eighty three. One one technical trivia point is that Never Say Never Again is often described as a remake 
of Thunderball. Strictly not, McCloy did not actually have the right to remake the film of Thunderball. What he had was the right to make another film based on the scripts and treatments that he'd worked on. And that's why even on Never Say Never Again, there's credit to um, Jack Whittingham and, and Ian Fleming as, as co-authors of the original uh, original screen treatment. Yeah, and if you if you see um, the stuff that in the seventies as well as you mentioned, James, it's Warhead. It's really interesting the way they. It's really nothing like Thunderball at all. They have treatments for scenes set in New York with underwater sharks and all kinds of stuff on the Statue of Liberty and all kinds of things they were thinking of doing in the seventies and just didn't get to do in the end. None of which is in Never Say Never Again or was in Thunderball. So yeah, it's really interesting. Today, when you're out there trying to sell screenplays and film productions, as I try to do every day as a working producer in Hollywood, everyone tells you about packaging. You know, it's no longer the original material. It's no longer the original IP. It's who's in the movie. I think what hurt the early efforts to get James Bond off the ground as a feature film was the fact that they did not have the actor in place. And if they'd had, uh, for argument's sake, if they'd had a Cary Grant or if they'd had Richard Burton, whoever it was at the time, I think it would have helped them because these studios were not as familiar with Bond at the time. I don't think Bond was the worldwide phenomenon yet, even though the book sales were starting to increase. I think it hurt them that they didn't have the package. And I think that UA was taking a little bit of a risk, but I believe it was David Picker who was the smart boy in the room when they came to make the deal who realized that they were on to something. Um, so I think that packaging today is still a big issue with Hollywood. Um. These days, James Bond is a, a formula. We It's a blueprint that we follow. And that blueprint was not set with the first film. There were definitely a lot of differences. And I found that to be more interesting than the similarities at times. But how does the James Bond formula really start to come to be? When does it start to come to be? When do we get the opening with the last adventure, we get the beautiful girl montage during the opening credits. We get the theme song that is specific to the the film. When does that actually start to happen, Steve? I think from the get-go. I think Dr. No set the tone right at the top. You know, at least three beautiful women. You have uh, you have the very the macho-ness of Bond. Cubby told me that their their plan was to have a British Mickey Spillane type character, a Mike Hammer. As Cubby said, they wanted a Britishman or a, Brit- a Britisher or a Commonwealth actor who was good with his fists, which was rather unusual at that time. And in Connery, I mean, when Connery throws a punch in Darby O'Gill and the Little People, which is one of the movies they saw him in, they liked that. The formula began to evolve very quickly. Obviously, there's not a real pre-title sequence in Dr. No, because if you have titles, then it leads into the three blind mice. But I think there are certain things that they had to have from the beginning, which was Bond's toughness, the sexiness of the women, which was very unusual for that period, especially in mainstream so-called family adventure films. And that's something I think that really has to be emphasized on the early Bonds, how damn sexy they were and how we kind of miss that because the movies have become more violent and less sexy. And for young prepubescent kids watching these movies in the early 60s, 
these movies were really revolutionary in many ways. Because, you know, these obviously these are very soft, sexy movies. We're not talking about pornography, but there are things going on there which we were not really used to. Voluptuous women in all of their decolletage. That was a big part of the success of the early Bond movies. And I think that obviously they can't do much of that anymore because of new moral issues. When such treacherous women as well, so many women just ready to kill you like a uh, black widow after you have sex with them, or I suppose a praying mantis would be a better metaphor. I mean, you've got Ursula Andress there. I mean, yeah, she was a revelation. I don't know if how many American audiences at least were familiar with Ursula Andress at that time. Well, that was a, a that was a banner year for introductions. Not only is Ursula Andress considered to be the most the most dramatic introduction of a new actress. I mean, no one had ever appeared like that. And to this day, I would say it's right up there as the most extraordinary introduction of a new face. It was also the same year that they did the movie Lawrence of Arabia and Omar Sharif got the introduction on that camel coming to camera, which is also considered quite the introduction of a new face. But Ursula Andress was amazing. I mean, she's course, she's redubbed. You know, she's Nikki Vanderzil, who's all over the early Bond movies. I mean, she's almost every female voice. It's it's pretty great. I mean, if you look at that movie today, Dr. No is extraordinary in the production value that's available on screen for the money they spent. They really put their money up on the screen. And I just watched the movie recently, Fathom, which is this company that rents out four walls, theaters all over the U.S. and shows classic movies. I saw it on the big screen and it still plays like it did 60 years ago. James, you mentioned Dr. No as being kind of a recurring villain, but I don't think he ever comes back, but Spectre definitely does. Can you tell me a little bit more about the original plans for Dr. No and what is Dr. No's actual motivation? Dr. No was going to be a recurring villain in the TV series that that, that never happened. And then he just becomes a one-off villain in the book. See, the scripting process of Dr. No is really quite interesting. And this is one of the things I discovered when I went back and new archive materials had come available, Richard Maybaum's papers, which are held at the University of Iowa, which um, I was allowed to uh, allowed to consult. And 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 he not undergoes quite a lot of change and revision uh, between sort of uh, summer of 1961 and January of 1962 when they start uh, when they start shooting it. In the book, Dr. No is a Soviet agent. He's backed by the Soviet Union. He's backed by Smirsch. He's a kind of, he's kind of, he's a bit like Goldfinger. He's kind of one of these freelance megalomaniacs who are backed by the, backed by the communists. There was a decision, I think they wanted to move away. Kirby and Howie wanted to move away straight down the line, Cold War narratives, even though, you know, Dr. No happens to to end up being released right in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and, and sort of had that degree of topicality. But the Doctor No is unusual. With, with most films I've come across where, where the film is based on a book, what you tend to see is the early treatments often quite close to the book, but will need to be made more cinematic in certain ways. So the, the process often takes them further 
away from the source material. With Dr. No, it's precisely the other way around. The early treatments jettison a lot of Fleming's um, plots. Yeah, Bond's still in it and, and Dr. No's still in it. Um, Honey's still in it. He's characterised in a very different way. In the early drafts, she's uh, not, a, not a white Jamaican uh, woman, but, a, but a, an Anglo-Chinese character. I think they, they then take some of that Chinese well into into the character of Miss Tara, who's who's an addition for the uh, for the film, but Doctor No himself initially is in 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 the first treatment by Richard Mayburn and Wolf Mankiewicz is leader of a, a Tong society, a Chinese secret society, and his aim is just to ferment unrest and uh, you know you know, cause 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 political disruption. That that idea is jettisoned in a later draft. He becomes a a Soviet, a red Chinese agent who is looking to blow up the gates of the Panama Canal to destabilize the American co- economy and so on. This, this is very, very different from the book. Eventually, as it goes through various, various drafts, more Fleming's plot is reintroduced into the in, into the film. The structure becomes much more like the novel. It does extend the scenes that are set in Jamaica. But once they, they're out on the island and meeting Honey, Bonacore meeting Honey, the encounter with the um the the, the, the dragon, the, you know, the, the 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 armored tank and, and then into Doctor No's Lair. It, it becomes much closer to the um to the uh, to, to the novel. What they do by certainly by the the December 1961 draft is that Doctor No is working for Spectre rather than for either the Chinese or the or the Soviet Union, and I think this was a a conscious attempt first of all to move the films away from a, a Cold War political background, but also they were probably looking ahead and thinking Spectre, which which doesn't feature in the novel of Doctor No, but is but is elsewhere in, in Fleming's work, could be a useful villain to come back. James, your your book is very interesting in that you're you're into myth busting. I did find it interesting after it. I'd heard it from a couple of different parties, including Maybaum himself, that you believe the idea that one of the writers had turned the name Doctor No into the name of a monkey that sat on the villain's shoulder a, a myth. And I, I was curious, what, how did you come to that conclusion? The story that gets told, and and Maybaum tells it. Cubby Broccoli tells it, Terence Young tells it, Joanna Harwood, who, who came on to do a sort of script polish on the film, tells it, is that in an early draft, Dr. No was a monkey. And I think Cubby even embellishes it at one point to say, you know, Mankiewicz and Mabum delivered this script in which Dr. No was an intelligent monkey, who was sort of sitting there pulling levers and those other things. That, that there's no script I've seen or no treatment I've seen that, that has anything like that. What we have in the first treatment is that Dr. No is the leader of something called the Black Monkey Cult. And Bond, when he's on Crab Key, goes into, and this is a, yeah, a secret society, when Bond is on Crab Key, he and Honey go into a graveyard where they come across a large statue and honey says that must be the grave of a very important man and bond works out it's actually the grave of dr no who has been killed um, and his identity assumed by a creole shipping merchant called hugh buckfield none of this is in the book and it's buckfield who has a pet monkey uh, these are called called Li ching and when bond sees the same monkey in dr no's lair he deduces 
that Buckfield has killed Dr. No and taken on Dr. No's identity. In a sense, there's a little bit of that comes through in, in when, when they do the movie of Live and Let Die, where you have Mr. Big and Dr. Kananga, and, and, and Mr. Big is a villain in, in the book, but in the film, it becomes Dr. Kananga, who is disguised as Mr. Big. A little bit of that, that early idea might just have come through as an influence onto um, on, on, on to live and let die. Although although maybe I didn't uh, I didn't write that particular picture. Steve Smirch and Spectre have come up a few times. I'm trying to remember. Does Smirch get a mention, or is it always Spectre? Because Smirch sounds familiar to me. Well, first of all, as James points out, Spectre does not exist in either Doctor Noah from Russia with Love, and I think there, I think part of the problem in the battle between Kevin McClory and the Thunderball property is that I think he was very upset that Cubby and Harry probably shouldn't have put Spectre and Dr. Noah from Rush Love because in a sense they were, they were trading on McClory's IP. Now they had, I don't think he had won the case yet, James, doesn't he win after the Dr. Noah's already in production? It's, I think, late 63 that the case is settled in the end. It's an out-of-court settlement, but McClory is awarded the um, the rights, yeah. So they, it was very unclear then, probably, what the fate of Spectre was. So they just plucked it and put it in the movie. As, I'm not sure if Smirsh is mentioned in Dr. No, but so obviously it's certainly mentioned as the key villain in From Russia With Love. So, you know, Spectre is become a major factor in the last 15 years, of course, being the primary responsible for the, I mean, primary entity responsible for all the international terrorism in the five Daniel Craig movies. Although it takes a while before we actually get to Spectre, etc. And of course, Smirsh has kind of disappeared from the series as, as most of the Cold War pinnings. In fact, the Cold War was starting to thought in the Bond movies with the Roger Moores, with Walter Gotell's character of Gogol going from a KGB general to a diplomat. And, you know, it's amazing watching the series now that it's 60 years old. You see the history of the world playing out in those plots. Tony, how did being Bond affect Sean Connery? You know, I said earlier that it was kind of instant mega fandom and mega stardom. And I think, I think that is true, but I think at the same time, does build an increment over the 1960s to a point where it gets to i think i think a major reason why he becomes disenfranchised which is you know common knowledge as time goes on is because he struggles i think with the aspect of being such a big star in a property that is you know i mean i'd go as far as to say the first true franchise fandom that exists. I mean, even before something like Star Trek comes along and then Star Wars, where there is this enormous fan interest, Bond, you know, Bond mania, equivalent to Beatlemania, you know, in the 60s. And it becomes a bit all encompassing to a man who was quite, in many ways, quite conservative and, and valued his privacy all through his life and didn't really want people in his business, you know, and he was quite honest and open about that. And there's a story about when he's making You Only Live Twice, which was the last film he makes before. He quits, goes off for a few years, and then makes a deal with David Picker to come back and do Diamonds Are Forever if he can make two movies of his own. And then, you know, it's for a lot of money. But there's a story he's filming in the Far East and fans basically get into the, the bathroom with him and start, you know, interfere. And, and he's at that point, he's very, and he's very open about this in the press and saying this is way over the line. 
you know. And so I think he understood how it changed his life and transformed him into this big star and gave him the, you know, the ability to work with great directors. Like, you know, he works with Hitchcock and Marnie and in the, while he's making the Bond films early on, you know, chances that probably may not have afforded him had he not made Bond. But at the same time, I think he, he always struggled with, well, A, that those aspects of the fandom, but also I think the, the financial side, you know, he was, he was often at loggerheads with Broccoli and Saltzman about pay. I think he, he for, throughout his tenure, I think he thought that they were ripping him off in many ways and that he wasn't getting his due, especially as the films became more profitable and became more successful. And uh, hence why he, he comes back later on for much more significant, you know, money. And also when he, when it comes to, as has been discussed here, never say never again. And those productions attempts to make in the seventies, a bomb movie, he's very involved to the point he's consulting on scripts. He's executive producing, you know, and he gets much more involved in it. So I think, I think it was a bit of a, I wouldn't say poison chalice cause he does very well out of them, but I think a, a, uh, a mixed bag, hence why he's notoriously ambivalent in some ways about Bond over his life. I remember when The Untouchables came out, when Hud for Red October came out, people were just losing their mind about Connery's accent, about it being a Scottish accent. He's not Irish, he's Scottish, you know, he's not Russian. Were people giving him crap all the way back then with uh, his accent in the James Bond role? As far as, far as I know, no. I think that, that sort of seeped into popular culture as time went on, especially as he started to play roles that were, you know, more and more extreme than, than a British secret agent, you know, when he's playing a, a Chicago cop or a Russian submarine commander. I don't know if Steve or James, you'd know more specifically about how this was received on Dr. No. I'm, I'm not entirely sure about that, but yeah, I think, I think that's something that he's like many actors, he's really forgiven for across his career. But in terms of how it affected Bond, I think it, maybe because he was the first Bond to play this role on, on the big screen, at least the first signature role. I think it was just part of, of who he was and that what he brought to the role. But as I say, Steve, James, you might have a different answer to that. Well, the reception of Dr. No by critics is quite interesting in that regard, AJ. The, um, the, 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 the quite a number of critics, and this includes British as well as American critics, who can't place Connery's accent and they describe it as sounding Irish-American. And I, I think this is partly because Connery you know, has the, 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 the kind of soft Edinburgh accent that he has is within, within traditional British cinema. I mean, this is a time of the new wave films of, of actors like uh, the, uh, Tom, Tom Courtney, Albert Finney, Richard Harris coming to the fore. And so you're getting more sort, sort, of, sort of regional accents emerging in, emerging in British films. But the Scottish accent is particularly difficult to place in terms of social class. So it's not obviously working class um, accent, but it's also not the kind of refined gentlemanly tones of a, of a David Niven or, or, or someone like that. So the, the fact that critics couldn't quite place it is, is, is um, I think, quite interesting. The other point I make about Connolly's accent Look, we all do, don't we? We we do our Sean Connery impersonations, uh, where we do the shilly eshers like that. Connery doesn't start talking like that in movies until Diamonds Are Forever. And it's when he's impersonating Klaus Hergesheimer from G-Section, checking radiation shields. And he, he, he starts to talk like that when he's actually doing that kind of little little jokey impersonation in, in the film. And then the older he gets, the more pronounced that 
that that accent becomes. Now, whether he was consciously doing that to 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 send himself up and and so on, maybe he just couldn't give a damn anymore. But but it became part of his trademark. You know, and the the joke was he could play a an Irish Chicago cop, he could play a Russian submarine commander, he could play Robin Hood. And he could play an, an Arab chieftain um, in The Wind and the Lion, and it always has the same accent. Lots of talk is about how Terence Young cleaned him up a bit, that Sean was a bit of a, a sweatshirt and, you know, dungarees kind of guy, and he had to introduce him to his tailor, you know, the whole thing. It would not be surprising to me if he was also brought together with a dialect coach to smooth out some of those edges, because if you think about it, as James points out, you don't see any much of that Scottish accent in Dr. No. In fact, the way he's introduced at the Chemenda Fair table. By the way, James, maybe you can, you know, Tony, explain, explain to me the difference between Chemenda Fair and Baccarat. Is it the same game or is it two different games? I wish, I wish, Steve, I was cultured enough to know the difference here. I'm so sorry. <laughs> As far as I can tell, it's 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 the same game by by a different name. In America, you play you play um, you play baseball. We we call it we call it rounders, but it's you know it's, it's not quite the same. I know it's not quite the same, but um, it does seem to be fundamentally the same. At the Shaminda Fair table, when he's introduced and says the name James Bond for the first time, it's definitely not a Scottish accent he's projecting. And uh, he comes across very well. In fact, he comes very, he's, he's very, very erudite. He knows the right lines. His, his delivery is on target. Dr. No, to me, is a perfect film. I have no problems with anything in that whole movie. And I think the early Bond movies were so perfectly realized, um, you know. But obviously, they didn't, it wasn't the Sean Connery they had a problem with. They obviously had some problem with Ursula Andress as I think it was somebody, I can't remember who it was, but they told they told me that Ursula Andrews' speaking voice at that time made her sound like a Dutch comic. And I, <laughs> so they had to clean her up, and Nikki Vanderzil came to the, you know, came to the rescue. I guess she was, I guess Peter Hunt was a big fan of hers. I didn't realize how much revoicing there was involved in those days, but they certainly did a lot of revoicing. I'm always surprised, even though I know he's in this movie, is the presence of Jack Lord and the whole Felix Leitner character. I'm always fascinated by that character, especially I think right now, Jeffrey Wright does a fantastic job of that character and I really like him. But how does Leitner get involved? Is he always in those books? Is he always the man from America that helps out James? Um, well, Leitner appears in, is it seven of the books? Around about half of the of the books, and he's a kind of uh, he's, he's kind of a sidekick. He's, 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 a, he's a bit a bit of a yes man. And one of the things that Fleming does that is, you know, it's tying into geopolitics, but it, it, it's tying in a in a not very kind of way. It, it, Fleming's books are positioning Britain still in a position of of global leadership, global leadership in the Cold War. And so on, and 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 um, Light and the CIA come in as kind of secondary characters who are there to kind of help out. And and Light, it does. I mean, he bails Bond out of the um, out of the um, high stakes uh, baccarat game in in Casino Royale, for example. But of course, in reality, the the the, the Anglo-American power relationship of the 1950s was entirely the other way around. 
Um, and one of the interesting things about that CBS live broadcast from of Casino Royale from 1954 is that Bond becomes an American and, and Lighter becomes British. And, and you know, that, that, you know, the, the, the change, I think, is interesting. Lighter isn't in the novel of Doctor. It's one of the ones he's not in. And it's a little bit, you know, I think fans often wonder, why do they introduce him into Doctor? Because Bond already has a sidekick in Doctor now. He's got Quarrel, who's his local ally, the film doesn't do Quarrel justice at all, I don't think. I, th- I think that the, um, the, the role is underwritten and Quarrel is a much more sympathetic and, and, and heroic noble character in the, um, in the Fleming book. You sort of don't really need that, that, additional, that additional role in. Interestingly, the various scripts I've looked at, in some versions you have Lighter going to Crab Key with Bond. In some versions you have Quarrel going and, and, and Lighter turning about the end as he, as he does in the film. Partly, I think, is this is a British film that, that's hoping to get into the US market, so some, some US territorial casting is helpful. But also, I think, because it's set in the Caribbean, still at the time that Dr. No is shot, part of the British Empire, the, Jamaica is still a British colony at the beginning of 1962. Jesus to be for, from August of 1962. So by the time the film is released, it's already um, sort of out of date in terms of the, the colonial power relationship. But I think because America also has, you know, kind of geopolitical and cultural investment in the area. And of course, those early early treatments, of course, were, were positing a threat to the United States, a threat to the Panama Canal, so, so um, the, the American influence there. So I think that's why later comes into the um, into the book. I, I think, actually, Jack Lord was very well cast. He, he doesn't have the right colour hair for Fleming's character. But other than that, he, he, yeah, I think it comes over pretty well in the film. But of course, Lyder has been, you know, not well served by the certainly by the um, films in the uh, you know, the sixties and and seventies. Usually a different actor, and I think Lord was offered the Felix as well in Goldfinger, but but sort of you know wanted to be a film star himself, and, and it wasn't a big enough role for him by that stage. And I can't remember the exact timeline. He might have been starting a Wi-Fi though as well. But yeah, it's interesting that Light is in that film that that, that he isn't in the in the novel. I think it's accepted that Rick von Rick van Neuter, who was in Thunderball, was visually the best and closest portrait of of Felix. But the Felix parts have never have always been underwritten, as James points out. He's basically a sidekick, doesn't really get to do much. I mean, you know, the closest he gets to be in actual fighting is in Never Say Never Again when Bernie Casey goes into the ruins and has that rather misbegotten action sequence. Uh, Irvin Kirshner once told me told me that he did not like the direct action. Well, obviously that's true. <laughs> I'm really glad you brought up Quarrel because I'm so glad that Quarrel in the, is in this movie because otherwise it's a bad Chinese person talking with bad black people. And it's like, wow, obviously this is 1962. So we're not as conscious of racial politics, you know, and we're okay with a white guy doing like the yellow face for Dr. No, but it's in 2022. It's a little cringy now. Mike, I did say the movie's perfect, but there is one moment where I wish they would have cut that line, which is, fetch my shoes. I didn't like that one. So my knowledge of Dr. No isn't nearly as extensive as yours, Steve or James, but when I was looking at this, and this sort of links a little bit to when we're talking about representation and things, but it's more outside the frame of the movie. How true is it 
in terms of the contribution of a female screenwriter to this film in Joanna Harwood, because this is something I think come out in the last, in recent years. And I think it was a fact that went under the radar for the decades about the, the script contribution of a woman at the very beginning of the Bond franchise. And I, th I think I've got this right. The only other woman to contribute to a script was for No Time to Die, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, most recently, apart from that. So that's in a remarkable span of time when this has been male-dominated. What contribution do either of you know about her role and how she shaped the, this, the, the formative start of Bond on the big screen? There's a third woman scriptwriter, Michael Aptib's wife, Dana, also contributed to um, The World Is No No, but she's not credited on the film. Joanna Harwood was an Irish screenwriter uh, who worked with Harry Saltzman and that's how she comes to be involved in in Dr No and in and in Fermation with Love and she's credited on the film Dr No and she's as an adaptation credit for Fermation with Love and because I think Richard Maybaum goes on to do so many Bond movies and he has been interviewed he's a very eloquent interview subject and speaks about how great it is. Yeah, we, we do tend to privilege his influence into shaping the um, the kind of style and structure of the films. So there's a sense that the other writers who maybe might have collaborated with at various stages have perhaps been uh, not given their their due merit in 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 in, in understanding how the Bond films came to be. And the interest in Jenna Harwood, I think, coincides first of all with a kind of reclamation of women who've been marginalised and rid out of film history across the board. So it's absolutely right that I think, you know, she's been tracked down and interviewed and so on. I do have a feeling that in wanting to claim the presence of Joanna Harwood and that, that maybe her role in Doctor No has been somewhat overemphasised. She said in interviews that she wrote an early, an early draft or an early treatment. If so, it, I've not found it anywhere. She's paid £250 which is uh, rather less than Barclay Mather, um, who was the other writer who came on fairly late in the day, who's paid £1,000. It's a lot less than the 5000 that Richard Maybaum got and the £7,000 that, that Wolf Mankiewicz got. So she, 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 she's probably not doing such a, such a significant role in, in the film. I, I think probably the standard account that she came on board and was, um, was a kind of script doctor is probably, is, is probably accurate. And it is, I think acknowledged that it was it was Harwood who came up with the idea of having the um the, the, the Goya portrait of the Duke of Wellington put in um put in Dr. No's apartment as a kind of little visual visual joke. But I don't think there's all that much significance to, to the fact of her being a woman. I don't think Dr. No has any particular feminist um input or, or, or influence in any way. And um and when I saw No Time to Die, um despite all the trailing around Phoebe Waller-Bridge's um, role in the film. I could think of a couple of lines that might have been hers, but it's, it's hard to um, identify, I think, a clear input. Bond films are, are, are made by committee, and then they're written by committee. And it might be at particular stages in the development of each project, one member of that committee is taking a more, a more dominant and leading role. But ultimately, they're collaborative uh, projects. Terence Young kind of dismisses her as, as his script girl. So I'm wondering if at some point she was a script supervisor on Dr. No. I'm not sure about that. But the whole reference to the Duke of Wellington portrait, as James pointed out, I think is true. She came up with that idea. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie, The Duke. It's quite a good movie. It's all about the 
the theft of that painting, which obviously inspired the Bond. In fact, at the end of the movie, you actually see the scene in Dr. No when Sean sees it. So it's actually quite a good movie. Very well done. I don't think there's much feminism, as James points out, in Dr. No. I mean, on the contrary, a lot of the things in the early Bond movies you couldn't do today, particularly the slap on Dink's bottom at the beginning of Goldfinger. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> One thing that we haven't talked about too much, you mentioned the Three Blind Mice song that opens up Dr. No, the music. Of course, music and James Bond go hand in hand, and that we have the theme in place by the first film is fantastic. How does the the James Bond theme come together? I sat down with John Barry for a lengthy period of time, and I think it's accepted now that uh, that no that Monty Norman came up with a theme, but it needed to be augmented. And from what John told me, uh, the plucked guitar, the signature, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, was pretty much John's. But it, obviously, that's not the whole theme. Obviously, that's, that's the guitar refrain. And John based it on some of his instrumentals that he had done as part of the John Barry Seven musical group. I think the extraordinary thing about talking to John was him telling me that he developed the Bond theme he wrote, or his staccato guitar thing, having not seen the movie. So he was handed a timesheet, told to come up with a minute 30 or whatever it was, and he just adjusted a little one of the... I think he told me it was from B's Knees. Certainly a better authority on this is the terrific John Burlingame book, that came out a couple years ago on the music of James Bond. He gets into it, although he, I gave him my interview with John just to show, to tell him that point of view. There is also a really good uh, documentary that's just landed on Amazon Prime recently called The Sound of 007 to tie into the 60th anniversary. And it gets into a lot of this detail, in, uh, including the, the really charming story of the first person who ever heard John Barry play the theme to Goldfinger. And I'm not going to ruin who it is, but it's someone very well known. It's a great story. So there's some really good, there's some really good stuff in that. That's a good resource. Monty Norman's contribution, I think, was significant. That, that he, was, he was on location in Jamaica, and along with Terence Young, he was, they, they, want, they wanted to give the film an authentic flavour of Jamaica. And so if you have that scene where they go to um, Pussfellas place, and you have... It's Byron Lee and his band, who are sort of local uh, Jamaican musicians who, who were recruited on, you know, on the location just just as the filming started, and um, and, and a, a future reggae artist called Camp Prince Miller, who does the uh, who's dancing on the Jump Up Jamaica routine, and so there's this small element, a very small element of cultural authenticity around around Jamaican music in um, in Doctor No. John Barry is one of the great film composers, and without question. And I've also what what's interesting about his his contribution, he becomes a lot more significant as the films go on. By the time of Goldfinger, he's being given, I think, a lot of a lot of creative agency over the film. But what Barry does is sort of combine, you know, quite traditional, very lush orchestral compositions with kind of jazz and beat music uh, that gives the films that, that very contemporary feel as well. And the sound and the soundscape of the Bond movies, particularly the 60s films, you know, I, I think is a major factor in, the, in their appeal. One of the things I found interesting in, in speaking to Terence was the fondness he had for John Ford. And I got the impression that Terence Young 
I kind of studied at the foot of John Ford and got a lot of his sense of scene composition and action sequences from John Ford. Terrence Young's contribution to the series is extraordinary. I think combining his, his directing skills with Peter Hunt's editing, really the action sequences are all just terrific. And as I mentioned before about making Bond a two-fisted hero, this movie really shows off Sean Connery's physicality. And, you know, not only taking care of uh, Mr. Jones, the agent at the beginning, but just all of his efforts uh, in on Crab Key. Uh, uh, so just so much palpable energy that contributed to the success of that movie. AJ, you've written about so many different things, as has everybody on this panel. But I'm so curious, you know, I think the last time we talked, it was about Star Trek. And now you've got this book about Connery. I can't really think of two different things, but how did you land on Connery as being the subject of this latest book? Well, can I tell you a uh, a, a little Connery Star Trek connective fact? Mike, oh, there we go. I was hoping you would bridge that gap. <laughs> so in 1998, William Shatner directs Star Trek V, the the, uh, the final frontier, and the uh, the villain in that is called Cybok, and he's Spock's half brother, and he's a zealot who's looking for God, and uh, the person that Shatner wanted to play, Cybok, was Sean Connery. <laughs> However, <laughs> he was unavailable, or said no, or didn't want to do it, or he was maybe making Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I'm not sure. It didn't happen, sadly. But in the film, the the name of the the planet that has God is called Shakari, which is sort of phonetic for Sean Connery. So, <laughs> so there is a little bit of a tether. Tony, excuse me. Was was it true that Sean was approached to play the game warden in Skyfall? He wasn't approached, as far as I know. It got to the point where they they thought it would be an amazing idea, and I think Sam Mendes said that was as far as it got. That they all got very excited at the possibility of uh, Sean Connery playing the Albert Finney character, but they they never got as far. And, and by then he was very retired, I think, in 2011, 2012. So, um, so yeah, I don't think he was approached, but it was definitely briefly discussed. And I think it's something that people, although I say people love, I mean, Albert Finney was fantastic in that. And he himself, as as James has said, is, as, is this very great connective to the British New Wave and to Harry Saltzman at the very beginning, you know, who could, in theory could have been a Bond contender maybe at that, that time. So it's quite good casting in that sense. But this, I mean, in the book, there's so many different possible roles that Connery did or it wasn't approached for Gandalf, Morpheus, or the architect in the Matrix. You know, there's loads of really interesting characters that he might have played, or the, there are myths about him being approached, and a lot, a lot of the ones he turned down. And I think it would have been the same for Star Trek if he had been fully approached. I don't know if he was. He didn't. Under, he, did, he said, "I don't understand it. I don't get it." Um, because I think he was quite a, um, and I'm getting to answering your original question, Mike, <laughs> which was what made you write a book. If you look at a lot of his career around all the Bond movies that he did, I mean, Bond, Bond is only really a component of his long career in many ways. It's, it's the defining part of him, really. And, and I say in the book, you know, I challenge you to find a, an article or a piece on his passing that doesn't say James Bond actor or, you know, James, but something 007 or whatever, because he's so synonymous with that. But his career was so varied and so vast. And I think the reason that I wanted to to talk about Connery is because I've he's been my favourite actor since childhood, based partly on Bond, but also on all of the other roles he did that incorporated that charisma that he had and that that presence that he had. Whether it's 
Indiana Jones, where he plays completely off, off, you know, off type. Things like The Offense by Sidney Lumet, you know, where he plays this really dark existential character who's going through an absolute breakdown in middle age, all the way through to The Rock in the late 90s, where he's basically playing Bond, <laughs> had Bond been locked up for 30 years in many respects. So, you know, he was, he was a really singular presence. You know, he, he, very few actors managed to bridge multiple generations and survive points in their career where they were almost on the out. You know, there were points where Connery just wasn't making, these films weren't making money. He was doing really experimental stuff. I mean, it makes me laugh how he says, I don't understand Lord of the Rings. I don't understand the Matrix. Yet he made Zardoz with John Borman. <laughs> so, you know... So he's he's I, I think it's he's a he's a fascinating guy and he's and his career is genuinely hugely interesting. And I kind of wanted to write something that made made people remember he wasn't just Bond, you know, he was a really interesting actor who did try and shake it off and did try and experiment with different things. And I and I hope the book has maybe points a little bit of that out in, in many ways by looking at some of the, the, the movies that either have been forgotten or people don't think of when they think of Sean Connery. When, when I was doing the commentary track for Never Say Never Again, and I was interviewing Lorenzo Semple, who is uncredited writing that script, he knew Gregory Ratoff, who was the first producer to have an option on a James Bond novel, Casino Royale. And Gregory Ratoff had an association with 20th Century Fox. And what Semple told me, which I thought was extraordinary, is that Ratoff was going to turn James Bond into a woman, that they wanted Susan Hayward, the actress who had just won the Oscar for Best Actress for I Want to Live in the late 50s, they were going to make her a kind of a Jane Bond character. So I always I always thought that was quite fascinating that Bond in the movies could have started out as a woman, which, of course, all the feminists today would think is terrific. By the way, there was so much, ever, ever since... But Shauna Lynch was cast as Nomi in No Time to Die. Everybody was assuming that James Bond was going to be a woman. I told a hundred people that's all baloney. But they seem to think that Bond can be a woman. And I said, I don't think so. I basically tell everybody that Bond will be a white Commonwealth actor till the end of time. My theory, I sound terribly prejudicial, but I'm just talking about practicality. 60 years of success you don't mess with. Do you not think that he might? They might cast a Bayam actor, Steve. In in this, not not Idris Elba, <laughs> everyone talks about, who isn't almost certainly going to do it. But like, yeah, you know, an actor who has the the charm and the danger, because because I I, I do think personally, it, the point of Bond is that he is a man. Without wanting to be, I don't mean that in a sexist way, but I think you might lose something if you made him into a woman. But do you do you think they will never take that step to make him maybe to shed off this this latent idea of empire and establishment a little bit that it feels like they're sort of trying to do? Do you think they'll ever go down that road? On the one side, you can never say never. <laughs> Pardon the cliche. All bets are off right now because cinema, television, everything's changing before our eyes. It's becoming much less a uh, one note, and I think that. Just watching the Lord, the Lord of the Rings prequel now, you see a number of non-white actors in the cast, and I think that's the way things are going. I just look at it from a purely commercial point of view. Amazon has purchased the rights to MGM's library. They now own half of Bond, and they're pouring ton, tens of millions of dollars into this effort. 
I just don't think they're going to change it. You know, would you cast a white actor to play a Shaft reboot? Obviously not. That would be ridiculous. You'd be shouted down. I think that uh, my sense, it'll always be a Caucasian actor, and that's just my opinion. I'd like to see somebody who isn't well-known. I think we've forgotten over the years that James Bond is a secret agent. So making him a well-known personality, you know, like a Henry Cavill or, you know, I, I think that what was extraordinary about Daniel Craig's casting was we didn't quite know who that was. I mean, he'd done some supporting roles and he was very good, but he hadn't developed a persona that would say, well, can that guy do Bond? I think when we went in to see Casino Royale in 2006, we were a little disparaging. Who was this blonde Bond? Within 10 minutes of seeing that chase up the gantry, and the, my jaw dropped, and my jaw stayed dropped pretty much the whole movie. And even though I don't think the five films are equally good, I think there were some missteps. I mean, Quantum just dropped down considerably, and I didn't like Spectre as much on repeated viewings. Daniel Craig has literally been extraordinary in the role, and we're going to miss him. When Connery was cast for Dr. No, he, he was an act on the cusp of stardom, but wasn't quite there yet. He was on the way up. Daniel Craig, ditto, when he was, when he was, when he was cast as Bond. With, with, with Timothy Dalton, he was uh, really, really best known as a stage actor. He did, 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 did some films and so on. But, but I think Bond's you know, significantly raised his profile. Piers Brosnan was known for Remington Steel and the whole, you know, you know, problem around uh, around um, around the Remington Steel contract and so on, and then just then sort of supporting roles in, in films like Mrs. Doubtfire. The only Bond who, who was an established star was Roger Moore, and he was a star on television rather than in films. He'd done The Saint and The Persuaders. The Saint was massive, it was an international hit. It was you know networked in the US. It was you know one of those. He said like something like Star Trek. It was it, it was seen around the world, and then Rod, Roger had. A, visibility and a certain style and, and that inevitably impacted I think on his um, on his uh, performance as Bond but he's also although being the only really star name cast in the role is probably the one who most people would, would in the end say is the least authentic to Ian Fleming's character I still love him as Bond by the way I'm a big George Lazenby fan I think that he was quite quite good in a role which he was totally unqualified to play. I mean, when he told Peter Hunt he'd never acted before, Peter Hunt nearly had a heart attack. So he bamboozled himself into the interview. He bamboozled himself through everything, telling people he had done East European films, which they couldn't check pre-internet. But in reevaluating the series, I don't think George Lazenby's subsequent Bond movies would have reached the level that Rogers did. Roger Moore rebooted the series with Live and Let Die, reached a high level with Spy Who Loved Me. And I think that he brought the Bond character to a whole new generation of people who by then, by the mid-70s, were looking for something a little bit lighter anyway. So the dark Connery Bonds of the 60s needed to kind of find a new audience. And I think Rogers should not be, uh, you know, you shouldn't knock Rogers' contribution to the series because I think he raised them to a big international success. I, I agree with, uh, with you there, Steve. And um, I've always said that the Diamonds Are Forever, which has this really camp and uh, excessive kind of style to it. Diamonds Are Forever is really the first Roger Moore Bond movie. It just doesn't have Roger Moore in it. But it sort of, you know, there's, there's nothing as, as camp in any of the Roger Moore films as we see in Diamonds Are Forever. So, James, I know you've written about 
Bond before, obviously, with License to Thrill, and now you've got this new Dr. No book out. Are you going to be continuing down this path? Will you be doing a From Russia with Love next? Um, my wife has uh, written a book on From Russia with Love for the British Film Institute Film Classics series, uh, Luella Chapman. So, so we we have a we, we have we have we have the first two films. We have the Bond back to back double bill um, uh, uh, between us. I don't know at the moment. I mean, you, you know, I've got other projects I want to explore, but I always seem to end up coming back to Bond. I, I just love the films and, and I love doing the research. So, which I would never say never. But I don't have any plans right now. I think I've. I've had, which bonded out at the moment. But the Dr. No book was, was, was a lot of fun to write. It was also interesting because since I'd first worked on this, on this subject nearly 25 years ago now when I was writing License to Thrill, more archive materials have come to that. I mentioned the Richard Maybaum papers, but also the um, United Artists corporate records I was able to see, which I'd not seen before, and the, uh, the Film Finances archive in London, Film Finances provided the completion guarantee of a completion bond for the first bond movie and there's a lot of production correspondence in there that um, really casts a new light on the on the personalities and the dynamics of production and the, the yeah, some of the difficulties that were encountered in, in, in it so um, you know caused me to rethink some of my uh, some of my assumptions about the about the making of the first film the conversations that you and your wife must have had over the last few years must have been fantastic. I, I did. I did have one moment when when we were looking at something like that. I waved my hands in the air. And I said, "Doctor No was never a monkey," and so. But yeah, yeah, we've. Um, um, it, it, it's nice to be able to work, you know, work on the same material and um, and exchange ideas and, and and swap notes and so on. So, what's next for you? I want to write a book on the history of comic book uh, movies, not not just the Marvel and DC franchises of recent years but i want to you know, looking back to the um you know yeah flash gordon book Rogers serials um adventure captain marvel and so on in the in the 1930s and 1940s and then and then bringing all that up, up to date and think about the comic book movie as a which is similar to the bonds in certain ways you, you know they're films around spectacle they're films that by and large have been dismissed by critics as being trivial and, and, and not very important. So that's, that, that's perhaps the next one for me. And um, I also want to write about, um, about Sherlock Holmes on screen. So, yeah, I've got plenty to keep myself occupied. There is. Steve, what got you into writing about James Bond? Because, again, you've written about so many different subjects. But you've written about Bond at least once before, before your encyclopedia, correct? Right. The original book, the James Bond films, A Behind-the-Scenes History, was published in 81, updated in 83 for Octopussy and Never Say Never Again. And then the, I wrote the first encyclopedia in 90, updated in 95, 2003, and then I just did the, re the new version, came out last year. Uh, so I'm done with Bond for a while. I'm focusing on my film career. I'm trying to... Uh, get some comedies going. I've written, I'm working in two different quadrants. I'm working in comedy features, writing with a partner who's an American television writer. So we're out there every day trying to sell comedy features. And then with another partner, I've written a children's picture book called The Cat Who Lived with Anne Frank. And it's the story of the, the, the children's picture book is the story of the attic from the point of view of Mushi who was the cat that was brought into the attic by Peter Van Pels, who was the son of the family that shared the, the space. So we've written an animated feature based on that book, whereas the book is really Anne's story from the cat's point of view. Our movie takes Mushi out of the attic, and he joins the Dutch animal resistance against the Nazis. And in our story, 
the Nazis are the Doberman Pinschers, Rottweilers, and German Shepherds that patrol the canals. So it's a kind of an animal world. We say it's Lion King meets Inglorious Bastards for kids. I'm focusing on that. And then I have a podcast now. I have Stephen J. Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies, and we're going to be doing something with James. And Tony, I want to get you on as well, because I'm also a big Connery fan up the wazoo. I first discovered him in a Tarzan movie uh, that you well know, Tarzan's Greatest Adventure with with Anthony Quayle and uh, Neil, Neil McGuinness. It's it's quite an extraordinary adventure film. Uh, I highly recommend. And of course, Gordon Scott as Tarzan is one of my favorite Tarzan characters. And and Sean basically plays a supporting character. He's just just kind of a a fellow villain. It's interesting. So I'm keeping busy. AJ, I'm just going to wrap up with you here and, and ask you the same question. What's next for you? Because I know you are always all over the map when it comes to just pop culture endeavors. I'm actually going back to Star Trek for my next one, for my next book with the same publisher, which hopefully will be out at some point next year. And I'm I'm looking at the unmade Star Trek projects. So it's uh, it's some of this information is out there, but it, I don't think it's ever been all compiled in one place. So it's going to be looking at all of the unmade treatments, spin-offs on TV at the movies, through through the 70s, um, into the modern day, right up to, in fact, there was just a piece published recently about the uh, the fourth modern Star Trek movie that still hasn't happened, uh, which might have brought Chris Hemsworth back, and there's been details on that. So it's going to be that, all compiled, the unmade secret history of Star Trek. So I'm looking, I'm in the middle of that now, and I'm looking forward to getting that done. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. This has been fantastic. I'm so glad we could talk about James Bond and Dr. No. And obviously, I will be posting show notes with this with links to wherever folks can be found for your books, all that kind of stuff. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for hosting. It's been great. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. And a pleasure to speak to James and Steve as well. Thank you. Thank you.